morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, I'm going to be preaching out of 1 John, which we will be turning to in a minute, but I wanted to, as background, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a very familiar passage, and it's a very familiar passage for a reason. It's one of the most beautiful passages of anything written in human language, and it's the... Uh, it's in the, in the context of a church, believe it or not, having all kinds of issues with spiritual gifts, and Paul centers them, saying this is the most important thing, well more important than any spiritual gifts. <clears throat> First Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and will understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things endures all things. Love never fails. But where, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. And whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. I also am known. And now faith, now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we pray that you will help us. We pray that you will give us grace, your unmerited love. Even in this hour as we study your word, we pray, Father, that your word will come alive for us and will warm our hearts and will motivate our lives. And Father, we ask that you will help us. Help us this morning to see you very clearly, to, to understand a little bit better who you are. And help us this morning to then understand ourselves and grace and help us then to be able to love, to be able to love, without which there, we're nothing, we're absolutely nothing. Give us grace, we pray. Teach us now from your word, we ask, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you will, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. That's the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. 
And what I want to do this morning is focus our hearts on love, on, on the concept of love. Love is a major theme in the Bible, a major theme in the Bible, love. And love is to be a great concern for God's people, for the church, uh, for us as God's people. We are to be people of love. When people walk into this place and experience, maybe for the first time, and if they walk into this place, or maybe for the hundredth time walk into this place, and they walk out of this place, the very first thing that should be the impression upon them is, is wow, what a loving people. Wow, I sure was loved. Wow, what kind people they are. And why should we be like that? Like, why is that love to be the primary, most powerful, most motivating thing for all Christians? And the answer is simple, but it's amazingly profound. God is love. God is love. Think about that. God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, listen to what... Uh, what John says, and he's, he says it because, number one, he's an apostle. Number two, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But in verse 4, he just said what I stumbled and bumbled and tried to say. Look at verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I messed up here. Verse. I'm sorry. Chapter 4, verse 7. Sorry about that. Talk about bumbling. Here we go. Listen how John says it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now notice that. Notice how God is love. We, God is love, and we're to love one another and we're also to love God. Think of the duty. Think when Jesus, they said to Jesus, what, what's, a, what's a, per, a bunch of legalistic people said this to Jesus too. What's the first and best law? What are, what are the more, most important laws? And they thought he would start going through the Ten Commandments and things like that, and he didn't. He said the first and greatest commandment is this, to love God, to love God with all of your heart, to love God with all your entire mind, all of your thought processes, to love God with all of your soul, to love God with all of your strength, to love God. That's the first and greatest commandment. Sums up the whole law. The Bible says, love God. And then Jesus said, the second commandment is, is, is the second is this, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. To have a genuine, real concern for your neighbor's good, for his good, as much as you have a genuine concern for your own good, to, to be concerned about your, your neighbor's well-being, just like you're concerned about your own well-being, to want good things for your neighbor. I was reading in my devotions, and Paul said in 1 Corinthians, and Paul said, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And I thought about this. It's the word, you know, some, we sometimes use the word edify to make an edifice, as it were. But the word is a construction word, to construct. Love builds up. And I, and I was talking with Jan. We were sharing about our devotions. I said, every person that we come in contact with, we're to build them up. We're to, we're to help them. We're to aid them along. That's what it means to love. 
And see, we as Christians, now look what John is saying. He says, if we are of God and anybody who knows God, then that person should love because God is love. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And why is that? Because God is love. So if you know God and you're born of God and God is love, then you should be a person of love. And who are we supposed to love according to the Bible? Well, the answer is everybody. Everybody. To no exclusion. Husbands are to love wives. Be genuinely concerned for our wives and for their well-being. Wives are to love husbands. Be genuinely concerned to do them good and for their well-being. Parents are to love their children, the Bible says. Children are to love their parents and take care of them. Siblings, sisters, and brothers, we're supposed to love each other. We're supposed to love each other. Church members... As God's people, we're to love one another, love one another, love one another. Again, look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, John is tying this all out. God loved us. We ought to love one another. Christians should love one another. Look at verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's strong language, by the way. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, he, here he is, here's his brother whom he has seen. He could certainly do him good. He who does not love his brother who he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. We're to love one another as the body of Christ. That's actually the one thing that should take place in this room and, and, and amongst us. And praise God it does. You are a very, very loving group of people. But Jesus said, by this you'll know, they'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what should come to mind when people think of Christians loving one another. Who else are we to love? We're to love strangers. We're to love people we don't know who come into our lives, and especially those who have a need. We're to love people and help to meet their need. That's why I, I, I delighted in this thing with compassion uh, and, and, and these parents who were seeking to teach this little girl, and they were doing a great job of it, by the way, to think outside of yourself and to think about other people than yourself. Because this culture wants us to be completely self-centered. And this idea of thinking of others and looking about others. And that's why Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And this man is walking along who's actually ethnically and socially supposed to be his enemy. This man sees this need and he acts on it. After two others just walked away thinking about themselves, he acts on it. We're to love strangers. We're to love People in our lives who are lovable. That's easy, isn't it? It's so easy to love people who are lovable. People who are sweet, people who are kind, people who are caring, people who are gentle, people who are cute. Where is she? It's, it's fun to love Zelda. It's easy to love Zelda, okay? Joyce Keeley's sitting over here, and when I was preparing this sermon, she came to my mind. Isn't she easy to love? She's so sweet. It's easy to love Joyce. It's easy. But we're also supposed to love people who are unlovable. People who are mean. I'm not going to point anybody out here, by the way. <laughs> Everybody got nervous. Oh, no. People, people who are mean. People who are cranky. People who are unkind. We're supposed to love those people. People who are proud and arrogant and puffed up. We're to love those people. People who are selfish. 
People are self-centered. We're to love all people. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward have... Sorry, I messed up. Can you get to that one? Is, do we have Matthew 5, 46 and 47? Forget the first Peter one. I skipped that one already. Okay. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? We're not supposed to just be kind and nice to people who are lovable. We're supposed to be kind and loving to people who are unlovable as well. Even our enemies. Matthew 5, Jesus says this, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. When your enemies curse you, bless them back. Do good to those who hate you. When your enemies hate you, do them good. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Make them a matter of your prayers. Pray for their well-being. We are supposed to love people who slight us, who are mean to us, who are unkind to us, people who are our rivals, people who disagree with us and, and think poorly of us and think we're stupid because they disagree with us and they're better than us. People who don't love us, don't even like us, people who despise us, people who disdain us, we're called to love them, to love them. People who are self-centered, we're to love the self-centered ones. They don't even care about you. They just care about themselves. We're to love those people. People who are proud and egotistical, all full of themselves, too good for us. They look down their nose at us. We're to love them. People who ignore us. At best, they just ignore us. They think we're a nothing. They don't respect us. They have no interest in us, no interest in getting to know us. We're to love those people. We tend to want to hate them, but we're to love them. Or worse, people who oppose us and reject us. We're to love those people. Now, here is where it really gets hard. It, this is something that seems impossible to do. I don't know if you're, maybe you're really good at this. I'm not. I struggle with loving my enemies. And when it comes to loving your enemies, it's very easy to start to rationalize it and explain why I need to be mean to this person, or I need to speak up against them, or I need to do something. We begin to rationalize why we should not love these enemies, because we just simply don't like them, and we don't want to love them, and it's so hard to love them. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't you see, don't we see from the scriptures that it is perfectly reasonable that Christians are called to love our enemies? I mean, really, of, of all of the commandments of Christ, this is one of them that I wish he would have never given us. Love your enemy. I just don't want to do this. But, but he gave it to us. But when you think about it, it's perfectly reasonable that we are called as Christians to love our enemies. And do you know why that is? It's because we have been recipients of that very same love. We are Christians because God loved his enemies. That's why we're Christians. And that's what's called grace. God has treated us with grace. 
God has poured out his grace upon us. And grace is this huge and powerful and persistent love that is poured out lavishly upon one's enemies. That's what grace is. That's how we were saved. God is love, and God pours out all of this grace upon us and saves us, and we've experienced his grace. And now he just tells us, go and do likewise to others. You see, dear friends, humans are infected by sin. We are all infected by sin. And one of the most, I think, the most awful thing that sin does to somebody. See, sin twists us and mangles us and perverts us. And the one of the, and the greatest thing that sin does, and this is why sin is so incredibly evil. Sin causes people, angels too, with demons. It causes people, demons, angels, whatever. It causes us when sin grips us to hate God, to hate God. We begin, we perceive God as an enemy. Sin in one sense, even though it makes us do all kinds of really wicked things to other people and hate other people and get totally self-centered, ultimately it causes us to turn upon God and to hate him. That's why Satan just hates God. He just hates God. And that's why unbelievers hate God. And that's why apart from grace, we hated God. We would hate God and we would be his enemies. And that's what the Bible, that's how the Bible speaks. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says this, for if when we were enemies, we were enemies. Notice that we are described before Christ as enemies. If, I, uh, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And I just want to poke, poke, uh, point out in this verse, we are, we are called enemies of God. Not just kind of lackadaisical and just kind of we sleep in the morning so we don't worship. We're called enemies of God in the Bible. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, and I'm, I'm putting this up in the Good News translation. It says this. And so people become enemies of God when they're controlled by their human nature. Now that become probably, become probably isn't a good translation. It should have just been are. We are enemies of God when we are controlled by our human nature, for they do not obey God's law. In fact, they cannot obey it. We become these enemies of God, and we don't like God. And that's what we were before salvation. That's what we were as unbelievers. Remember what if, if now some of you maybe were brought up in Christian homes and, and maybe you, you came to Christ at a very young age and you don't remember what it was like. But so, uh, some of us others, we, we, were, we were in adolescence or teenage years or adult years before we came to Christ. And what were you like before that? You had no real serious interest in or attraction or interest in God. You didn't. Why? Because we were his enemies. You had no desire to be near God, no desire to know God. Somebody invited you to worship. You said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. No, 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 I got other things to do. Come to a Bible study. No, no, I think I can do other things. Like Somebody can say to you, hey, come to a Bible study. Let's go to a Bible study. No, no, I can't. I'm busy that night. And, the, and five seconds later, somebody said, hey, dude, we're all getting together at the bar. He said, I'm there, man, I'm in. You would just do that. Why? Why? It's because something deeper and deeper is going to, I don't want to be around him. I don't like him. I am an enemy of him. That's what happens. We just don't want God in our lives. That's what we, were, we are by nature. We don't want God to rule over us. We don't want anybody telling us what to do, especially God. We don't even want to hang out with him. If you were to ask people, you were to poll people, the average person, is unbelievable, you poll them and say, 
If you had the chance in this world to hang out with one person, who would it be? And if you were to go in the streets and you were to do this to people, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say movie star or a sports figure or a musician of some sort. But amongst unbelievers, you're not going to anybody say, dude, man, I would love to hang out with God. I would just love to hang out with God. Just to spend like three hours with God and, and just talk and hang out with God. People wouldn't even, even say that. They don't want to hang out with God. And especially a God who makes demands. And a God who begins to reveal himself as holy. That actually stirs up our enmity against him. It makes us even greater enemies of him. A God who starts to give out morality and starts to talk about morality, what is right, what is wrong, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And as soon as God starts stepping on our toes and starts, starts to limit what I want to do and what I desire to do, we even hate him more. We even rebel against him more. He doesn't like the things. He doesn't like our sexual ethics. He doesn't like the fact that we hate people, that we're angry, that we're vengeful, that we're mean. And that we refuse to give thanks to him and we refuse to acknowledge him. And he doesn't like any of those things. Jesus said this, the world hates me and therefore it's going to hate you. The world hates me. Let me ask you this. What is there to hate? Like in Jesus, what is there to He's absolutely sinless. He is in the embodiment of love. What is there to hate? The world hates me. And dear friends, that's because sin has so twisted us that we hate God. Now, a few minutes ago, I described people who are very, very difficult to love. And this is how I described them. Self-centered. Oh, they're so hard to love. Egotistical. Oh, they're so hard to love. They ignore you, have no interest in you. They're so hard to love. Or worse, they oppose you. They reject you. They're so hard to love. Wait a minute, dear friends. That's exactly who we were to God. That's exactly who. The very people we have a hard time loving because they're so arrogant, they're so selfish, and they have, they have no concern for me whatsoever. They're no interest in being me. They don't even want to be my friend. Well, then I'll be there. And, you know, no, no, no. God makes me. God wants me to love him, so now i got to try to love him, and, and this is so hard to do. That's exactly what you and I were to God. We had no interest in him. We didn't want to further his cause. We didn't delight in him. We didn't want to be near him. We thought we were better than him, smarter than him. We had our own morals, our own standards, our own purposes, our own rules. We want him out of our lives. We don't want to have anything to do with him. And then when he sends his son, we execute him. But how did this God, who is love, treat us? Let's put a pause here for a second and think about something. Could you imagine? Have you ever been in a courtroom? Don't raise hands. <laughs> we'll, we'll be looking for your wanted picture. <laughs> Have you ever been in a courtroom? I've been in several courtrooms. Have you ever been in a courtroom with somebody to support somebody that's on trial that you love? Now, I was, as you all know, I was in a criminal jury. I was on a jury of a criminal case. It was, a, it was an awful crime, and it was a young man. And I could see his parents, like they were as far away as I am to Ben is right there. And his mother and father looked horrible. And she especially looked horrible, like she hadn't slept for months. She, was, she just looked undone and broken and sad. Well, let me, so, so, so could you imagine, let me ask you this. Could you imagine what it would be like, because this happens. Could you imagine what it would be like 
as a parent to have a child, a son, a, let's go with sons because they're 90% of the time, who was sentenced to execution. And on the day of your son's execution for his crimes, you did not want him to die alone. You wanted him to know that you were present. You went to the execution. Now, when they have executions for sons like this, they have two rooms, okay? And they're blocked from each other, and they can't see each other. It's a room for people who are family members of the person who's being executed to be a support to them. And it's a room of people who want to see that person die because they're family members of the person that he either killed or raped or something like that. Could you imagine, just try to imagine for a second, what it would be like to sit in that room as a parent to watch your child executed. And even the disdain and hatred that the people in the other room would feel toward you because they want to see your son executed. And you're sitting in the other room because, and, 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 and can you imagine the feelings that you would feel? You, you remembered when you held him in your arms. You remembered what went wrong. How did we get here? What's going on? And then watch your son. And then you didn't want to be there. And you're sick to your stomach that you're there. And you have to watch your son be executed. But you don't want him to be executed alone. Horrible. Now let's change it a little bit. What if you knew? Your son was innocent. What if your son is being executed for rape and murder and you knew for a fact that your son was with you during that time and the whole court thing spun out of control and he's being executed for a crime he didn't do? And dear friends, that has happened in history too. And you went to support. Now you're going to support him and you know he's innocent. And the people in the next room still hate you because they think that their daughter was raped and murdered by him. And you know he's innocent. You know he's innocent. Could you imagine the horror of that? I can't even imagine the horror of that. Now imagine this. Where are you and I actually in this picture? Do you know where you and I are in this picture? We are the ones who did the rape and murder. And yet we're in the room of the victim's family, hating the man who's being executed and hating his parents. We're the sinners. Jesus dies for us. And where's God in this picture? He's the father who willingly offered his son to die on behalf of the people in the other room who hate him, that they would be saved. That's exactly what John says here. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation 
for our sins. Propitiation is somebody who takes the wrath of our sins for them. In other words, the father would be sitting there watching his son being executed, knowing that we deserve to be executed. We were the ones who should be out there executed. And we are hating his son, and we are hating him. And his son is being executed, and his son is being executed because he sent his son. And his son came willingly and loved to be executed on our behalf. And he sent his son, and his son is out there dying for us in this room. And all we're doing is hating, and we're the ones who are guilty, and we're the ones that should be executed. And John is saying, this is what love is. This is God lavishly and graciously pouring love out upon people who need to be, who should be executed, whose wrath should be poured out upon them. But instead, he pours out his wrath and his just wrath on his son so that we could be free. This is love. This is unconditional love. This is grace. This is love we don't deserve. This is a deep, abiding, overwhelming love. Herein is love. This is who we are. And that is why when God saves us, it makes sense for God to say, I've poured and lavished grace upon you. Now love your enemies. Love everybody. You've experienced my love. Extend grace. Extend grace to the lovable. Extend grace to the unlovable. Extend grace to the kind. Extend grace to the mean. Extend grace to the humble. Extend grace to the proud, the arrogant, those who are full of themselves, those who are mean, those who are cranky, those who are wicked. Extend grace. Extend grace. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Why? Because this is how I've treated you. Dear ones, how do we do this? How do we do this? We, us frail people, how do we do this? Sin, you see, dear friends, has made us unloving people. Sin has done this. And then Christ comes and saves us, pours out his grace upon us, and then he says, go love your enemies. Well, we have a hard time making that transition. We do. So I'm going to give you some help in terms of how do we do this? How do we do this? I like to fly fish. And when I'm out fly fishing, if you're a good fly fisherman, like I am, if you're a good fly fisherman, uh, you're, you're trying to match the hatch. You're trying to figure out what, what they're eating. You're trying to figure out that's how you're going to get fish. And oftentimes what you do is you reach down in the water and you pull out a rock. And you look and see what kind of bugs are down there. What kind of bugs are they eating? What are the little larvae and nymphs there? But when you reach down into a stream and you pull out a rock, 99 out of 100 times, that rock is going to be soft, rounded edges. Why? Because that rock has just been washed over constantly, 24-7, 365 days out of the year. That, water, think, that is not for me to end preaching. I don't know what that sound is. But <laughs> I guarantee you that's not the Holy Spirit telling me anything. Um, washing over, washing over. That rock gets washed over, and all the sharp edges of that rock get soft. Or how about you take a piece of meat and you marinate it, and you put that meat in the marinade, and you let it sit there overnight. I have a friend, and he loves to hunt, and he eats a lot of. He likes to eat all the game, but his wife doesn't like game, and so she, he puts it in milk. He he marinates his meat in milk to take some of the gamey taste out. But the the meat, you know. And so what I'm trying to say is this, dear friends, we need to, in order to be gracious to people and to love them, we need to have a constant, constant pouring out of God's grace, constant exposure to God's grace for us, constant exposures, constantly marinating in God's grace so that we can extend grace to other people. And dear friends, how do you say, you say, how do I do that? How do I do that? 
Well, one of the ways that that happens for us is that when we become aware of our own personal sin, not just in, now that happens in salvation. We come aware of our own personal sin. We see our need for Christ and we run to Christ and we experience God's grace. But it's ongoing also in the life of the Christian. God points out sin to us and shows us our sin. And we realize how ugly that sin is. The Holy Spirit will say to you or me, you're so unloving. In that interaction, you were so mean. Look in your heart. You're so unkind. And the Holy Spirit will point out stuff within us. And you will see these horrible motives of, 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 of anger or, or vengeance or, or lust or, or loving material or our pride will all be puffed up. And the Holy Spirit will put a light on it. Remember how, how, how nice and clean your house looks until you move the couch? You know how nice and clean your kitchen looks until you pull out the refrigerator? Well, the, sometimes the Holy Spirit moves the couch, pulls out the refrigerator, and we look at ourselves and we say, it's horrible. And what do we do? It leads us back to the cross. We confess our sins. We ask for forgiveness. We experience God's grace. God pours out his heart upon us. And dear friends, as we experience that grace, as we experience that grace, as we experience that grace, you will find that you will be more willing and able to experience grace to other people. As you sit at the cross and you see the sacrifice and you see God's grace and you experience it, and you're so thankful that God treats you not on the basis of your works, but on the graces of your grace, and he keeps pouring out his lavish love upon us, then you will be more loving to other people. And so let me encourage you, you wanna be more loving? Spend time with God. Get alone with God. Experience God's grace. Come to know God's grace. And how? Get just get to know God. Spend time alone with God. Read your Bible. Spend time meditating. Pray about these things. Let them soak into you. Go to where what you're doing this morning. Go to where there's spirit anointed biblical preaching and and experience God. Experience God in worship. Experience God. Come to understand and know God deeper, and you will find that you can extend grace. Secondly, dear Christian, you have, and, and please, I'm asking you to experience the powerful, promised, transformating work of the Holy Spirit. The powerful, powerful, it changes you. The Holy Spirit changes you. Promised. He's promised. We have the Holy Spirit transforming work of the Holy Spirit, bearing fruit in your life. And what are the fruit of the Holy Spirit? What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? What's the first one? Love. Love. And dear friends, we are sinful people by nature. And even though we have been born again and we have the Holy Spirit within us, we still have a lot of our sinful past in us. And we need grace to rescue us and grace to transform us and the Holy Spirit to bear fruit. And when we come to Christ, when we originally come to Christ, we're young babes. We're like saplings, little saplings. If you ever mail, you, you, you mail order a, a fruit tree. If you mail order a fruit tree, you know what you're going to get in the mail? You're going to get something a little bit longer than this and it looks like a dead stick. It's like, I spent 30 bucks for this. This is crazy. It's a dead stick. You take that dead stick and you put it in the ground, and over the time, you're going to have a fruit tree full of fruit. And dear friends, God expects us as he's working in our lives to bear fruit and bear fruit and bear fruit and bear fruit and bear fruit until the branches are bent over. And that bearing of fruit is the powerful transformation of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, making us like God. And God is love and making us loving. And so I want to urge you, dear ones, pray. Seek, 
plead with the Holy Spirit to bear this fruit in your life. I've done this. I've done this for years. I've done this for decades, and I continue to do it. Trust the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Wrestle for this blessing and follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit says, you were mean there, confess your sin and ask for grace and help. You didn't genuinely care about that person's well-being. You're not supposed to be keeping a record of wrongs. The Bible says that the love doesn't keep the record. You rejoiced when something bad happened to that person. That's mean. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, ask for forgiveness and experience afresh the grace. And you will be able to be gracious to other people. And then obey. Jesus said, don't just talk to those who will talk to you. It's easy to love the Joyce Keelings in this world. But there's a lot of other people it's not easy to, to love. Love them as well. Greet them as well. Say hi to them. Win them over with love. Keep pouring love upon them till the rough edges of them as a rock and a stream get smoothed over. The Holy Spirit sometimes says to me, your job is not to be loved. Your job is to love. Go love. No matter what they treat, no matter how nasty they are, you go and love them. And pray that the Holy Spirit will give you grace. Pray that he will help you. And then just go out and love people. I hate to, all. I don't like to, in our generation, I don't like to appeal to self-interest. So up to this point, I haven't appealed to self-interest. God says he is loved. We've experienced his love. Go experience love. But I will tell you this. As the Holy Spirit enables you to love, and as you grow in love, and as you begin to genuinely care about everybody, everybody, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your stranger, the strangers in your life, even your enemies, as the Holy Spirit starts doing this really strange but glorious and wonderful thing where you start looking inside and say, it's a miracle. I actually care about that old mean old coot's well-being. I'm actually worried that if he dies in that nastiness, he will go to hell. I'm actually concerned about him. That's a miracle of God transforming you. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say this. If you and I can learn to love people and bear the fruit of love in our life so that love and grace oozes out of us, you will be liberated. You will feel free. It's a beautiful freedom. To you just want to click your heels. You will feel free. You know what you'll feel free of? You'll feel free from hatred and free from anger and free from resentment and free from envy. Love does not envy. Love does not resent. You'll be free. Yeah, a person that would normally make you anger or stir up hatred or stir up envy in you, you won't. You'll love them. And you'll be happier. You'll be happier because you love other people. See, when you love people, you genuinely love them. They can screw up in so many different ways and make your life so difficult, and it doesn't really matter. My kids know, my grandkids know, they work with me a lot. When you jump in the truck, you keep your muddy boots off the seat. They know that. I drill it into them all the time. But they usually know it after the muddy boots have walked across the seat. 
What did Grandma say? Oh, yeah. Keep the muddy boots off the seat. Yep, that's exactly what I said. Uh, let's wipe this off before I sit down in that mud. But you know what? I just love them. And it's not that big of a deal. And dear friends, if you love everybody, it actually makes life very enjoyable. Don't, I don't want to sound trite here. But it must feel cool to be God and to look out upon everyone and love them and want their good. That's why we keep getting so much food grown and sun shining and blessings coming and children being born and goodness happening because God is so good. And God... He has wrath. He is coming. He hates sin. Nevertheless, he loves. He loves. And I'm starting to wonder. I'm starting to wonder if love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all string back to love. Because I find that when the Spirit has filled me with love, for Jan, for my kids, for my neighbors, for you all, for every, I find peace. I find joy. I find God's grace. And I want to urge us, let's be people of love. If you've never come to know Christ, here's the first step. And it's a beautiful one. Plunge yourself into the ocean of his love and grace and acceptance and free forgiveness through the bloody execution of his son on your behalf. Plunge into that grace. Plunge into that love. Experience God and experience love. And you will begin to be on the pathway, the road to love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you are love. When I think of the ugly gods of Hinduism or the harsh, harsh God of Islam, I just praise and thank you that you, the only true and living God, are love. So much so that your beloved son, who you love with infinite love at your right hand, you gave him to us. You so love the world, you gave your son. You give us life. You give us breath. You give us health. You give us strength. You give us clothes. You give us food. You give us salvation. You give us safety. You give us all things you just give. You are such a good and loving God. And you're so full of grace, Father. None of us deserve your love. We're mean and wicked and angry and, and foolish and lustful people who should be in hell. But grace has just been poured out upon us because you are love. And Father, we confess before you we're unloving. After all this, we're unloving at times. Oh, help us to love. Holy Spirit, please bear this fruit in us. Make us like Jesus. Help us to love, to truly love others, starting in our households, 
to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, certainly to this place, and to the stranger. Help us, we pray, to love everybody, for you are love. Give us this grace, we pray. And we're praying believing, because we believe in you, Father. We believe in, the, in your Son. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and that powers in us. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in transformation. We believe that nasty people can be made loving. And so we're praying in faith. We're praying excited that we will, in fact, be loving. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.